We're taking a break from our series in the gospel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, expository preaching is what we do primarily here at King's Chapel, and we're in a series that we started last year called The Invisible Made Visible, Um, and then we are now in a summer series called Did God Really Say That? More of a topical sermon, we could deal with larger portions of scripture. The pastoral team, as I said, will mourn and fast and pray and pour sackcloth on ourselves and get back into expository preaching come September. Um, as I said last week, uh, as we do this seven-part series on these questions, cliches, advice, that's not really in Scripture. Uh, we find ourselves sometimes in a place where we really don't know what to say. And if all of us have uh, said things that possibly could sound like something God said, but really, as you look at it, it really didn't say that. So, last week we asked, did God really say that? I'm going to dismiss the kids in about two minutes, so if you're wondering. Last week we asked, did God really say that he will not give you more than we can handle? We found out that that cliche, that, that untrue statement comes with a bad interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13. That speaks about temptation to, to run from and not trials to endure. And that God sometimes causes us to take on more than we can handle because he wants us to rely upon his personal presence. He wants us to receive his perfect power and weakness. He wants us to rest in his sovereignty or his prescribed appointed purposes. And that we look to the gospel, that Jesus, even himself, our good Lord and Savior, our suffering Savior and his sacrifice on the night in Gethsemane accomplished a great feat the following day on the cross, but the night before he died, he, he cried out to his father. That personal presence of the father sustained God the son under severe trials as he sweat uh, mingled with blood dripped from his brow and he's contemplating the cup and, and the father strengthened him and he sends him to the cross for his predetermined purposes. He goes to Calvary. This week, there's a new cliche. Last week, did God give us more than we can handle? This week, there's a new cliche. As we seek to answer the question again, did God really say that? So kids, you're dismissed. And we'll stand here for about 40 minutes, 45 minutes, and ask the question, did God really say that with this video? Just headed into work. I got a big day ahead of me. Um, lots of stuff to do. Oh yeah, like what? Oh, I've got a OE workshop with uh, some corporate guys above site that I gotta put a bunch of data together, and also trying to figure out how to increase our manufacturing capacity so you know I can make more toothpaste. And then again, I got a corporate audit later this month. Just lots of stuff to do. What's going on? Wow. Okay. Yeah, that was a lot of stuff. Most of it I didn't uh, even know what you were talking about, but uh, the reason why I was actually calling was um, we were supposed to get together yesterday after uh, after church for lunch, and uh, I didn't see you there. I uh, missed you. I just wanted to make sure uh, everything was all right. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, man. I just, you know, I had to get a head start on some of this stuff, and I felt like, you know, just needed to get it done yesterday, but, uh, you know, I've always said... God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, let's hear it. Oh, funny, funny, funny. 
Did God say that he helps those who help themselves? Well, according to Borner, George Borner, who does the surveys, 68% of born-again Christians agree with that statement, and 75 to 81%, depending on the year, of Americans at large believe that came from the Bible. Now, I'm not sure what the percentage would be here if we asked you before you came here, or we took a poll in Albany, but I assume that the numbers would actually be higher here in our, in our, in our city. Uh, if you haven't seen le- lately, uh, Barna Poll for about Albany tells us that Albany, Schenectady, Troy is the least Bible-minded city in 2016. We're number one. Number one. It actually moved up from last year. We were number two. This year, we're number one. All right. We did something good. <laughs> With only 10% of its residents qualify as Bible-minded. They ask questions like, you know, do you read your Bible? Do you believe that the Bible is accurate in its principles that it teaches? And if that's not bad enough, Barner also reported that Albany is number one most post-Christian city in America. We're number one again. Post-Christian city in America. And they come to that conclusion because they ask questions like, or they seek to find out whether people are identify themselves as atheists and agnostics, or agree that faith really doesn't matter, or they've never prayed, or donated money, or attended a service. Uh, they don't believe in the Bible, or they say that Jesus actually committed a sin, and uh, things of that nature, and we are last. We are the most Post-Christian city in America, number one post-Christian city, and number one least Bible-minded city in America. So I don't know what the question would be or what our answer would be. Actually, Barna goes on to say that 60% of Americans can't name half of the Ten Commandments. 63 don't know the four Gospels. It's no wonder that people struggle with not only what the Bible says, but whether the claims that people are making are actually come from the Scripture. Once again, I mentioned this last week, Spurgeon, uh, Prince of Preachers, said discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong, it's knowing the difference between right and almost right. Well, like so many things, there are some small amounts of truth in some of the advice we give to each other, including God helps those who help themselves. You really got to dig at it to get it. We'll look a little bit at it today. What I want to do this morning, though, as we look at this from a topical perspective, keeping things in context, but looking from a topical perspective, is examine three separate facets, perspectives, of this spurious biblical misquote under three headings. So we're going to ask the question under three headings, looking at three different perspectives of... Whoop. Cancel, reconnect. Let me get that again. Remote. Come on now. Can you move the next slide for me? Here's the three things. Okay, good. Selfishness. Did God say he helps those who help themselves so that we can promote self-reliance? And selfishness? I don't think so. I think it's dangerous. Number two, salvation. We're going to talk about what is salvation. Did God say God helps those who help themselves in their salvation? And then we'll end with sanctification. What does that mean? Is there a role that we play in the work of sanctification. God helps those who helps themselves. We'll look at it in three perspectives. Selfishness, salvation, and sanctification. So that's where we're headed. Let me tell you first where it came from. Where did it come from that God helps those who help themselves? Many people think Benjamin Franklin, 1735, in Poor Richard's Almanac, said God helps those who help themselves. Now, if you know anything about Benjamin Franklin, he is a deist. who believed that God, or I don't even know if you know we would say God, but a supreme being 
created the universe, spinned it on its axle, sent it out, and visits maybe every few million years on what people are doing. They're not, he's not, he or she or whoever is not interested in human affairs. So God helps those who help themselves for a deist makes sense. But it actually goes back, believe it or not, to 550, around 550 B.C., where there is a, a, a Greek storyteller named Aesop, and he's an e- ancient Greek storyteller, and there's a fable called Hercules and the Wagoneer. 550 B.C. goes like this. A wagoneer was once driving, this is the fable, a, wa- a wagoneer was once driving a heavy load along a very muddy way. At, the la- at last, he came to a part of the road where the wheels sank halfway into the mire. And the more the horses pulled, the deeper sank the wheel. So the wagoneer threw down his whip, knelt down and prayed to Hercules the strong. Oh, Hercules, help me in this hour of distress. But Hercules appeared to him and said, man, don't sprawl there. Get up, put your shoulder to the wheel. The gods help them that help themselves. So whether it's 1700s, 550 BC, or even today, I think the main focus, if we look at that question, the main focus many times is the emphasis on self-reliance that reflects more of a theistic view, a, a pagan worldview, rather than a biblical truth. Scripture does not promote selfish, self-centered, self-confidence, reliance. Rather, the scripture encourages confidence and trust in God, not self. Psalm 121, where does my help come from? My help comes from what? The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It teaches us that God helps those who cannot help themselves. Now, Bill O'Reilly, the spin stops here. Maybe some of you heard of him before. I'm not here to promote any Left, right, blue, red, that's not my job. I will tell you, he's, whether you like him or not, he's a lousy theologian. I'll tell you that right now. Nothing personal. He is interviewing a pastor from New York City in 2002 about homelessness in New York City. And he said Jesus would have demanded that the homeless people shape themselves up or else. Because we all know the passage, the Lord helps those who help themselves. Now, not just to pick on the right, President Obama, 2011, his job bills, I trust in God, but God wants to see us help ourselves by putting people back to work. And of course, his White House press, press secretary, Jay Carney, at the time, drew more attention because he said that verse actually comes from the Bible. It doesn't. So what's the real problem with this statement? God helps those who help themselves. I mean, does God, do you come to the Lord in prayer when you're out of a job and you pray, Lord, give me a job. I need a job. I want to work. I want to do the things. And then turn on the television, shut the phone, and never leave your house, expecting somebody to find your house, knock on the door, and offer you a job. I hope not. Does God expect us to play a role in providing for our needs? Well, of course. There's a lot to be said from the scriptures about the sluggard, the ones being lazy. Proverbs 26, as the door turns on his hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hands in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. That's tired. That's lazy. It actually says that we should follow Proverbs. We did a series that had something to do with this. We can look it up online. But um, we're supposed to actually follow the ant. A-N-T. 
I know from the city, aunt, aunt, I don't know how y'all say that, but the, the thing on the ground, not the, the relative. But anyway, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, old sluggard, when you arise from your sleep? How long are you going to lay there? Second Thessalonians 3.10, Paul admonishes the church, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. In other words, don't, don't come to the aid of those who can work, have the ability to work, but refuse to work. In John 21, we'll get there. Jesus tells the disciples, there's lots of fish out there, and I'm going to show you how sovereign and, and how much I am fully God. Throw your nets on the other side of the boat. There's a big catch for you. He doesn't say, stand still, I have the fish jump into the boat. He says, you throw your net over. Some people would just lie around and have God put food in their mouth and not move. So obviously God gives us gifts, talents, and, 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 and things that we can do. We're supposed to use them. But, but here it is. Here's the problem. Self-reliance and self-righteousness or an attitude of, of trying harder and doing better can actually make us selfish and get in the way of the work of God. So my fear is that sometimes we use God helps those who help themselves. What we're really saying is go out there, work really hard, and when you make a lot of money, just pat yourself on the back on what a great job you did. And that can become a problem. Too often, those of us who work hard become callous to those who are less fortunate. And we tend, not always, but we tend to quickly look down on others who are less fortunate, who maybe we think didn't work as hard as we do. Family, the American dream, the American dream is just that, American. The people of God, Paul instructs in Ephesians 4, to labor hard, to work hard, doing honest work with your hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Generosity, glory to God. And I think that's why the statement is a bit dangerous because it promotes this self-help, self-reliance, and it turns into self-righteousness and selfishness. And I, and I have to be honest, let, let the pastor be honest for a minute. I struggle with it. I mean, I don't know what family you came from, but I came working when I was 11. Like, I worked all my life. I worked hard. Since I was a kid, my family was poor, didn't have a whole lot. And I have to be careful. And I'm not judging people right away. Maybe some people need a little kick in the butt to get moving. Don't get me wrong. But I'm way too quick to look at someone else and judge them quickly. So we have to be very, very, very careful. And I think that's what O'Reilly was getting at. It's one thing to say, if you are able to work, you should work. It's quite another thing to speak for God and tell people that God wants you to get going so that when you get going, God will then will help you. That's a different word. That's a different word. I mean, you work hard, you make something out of nothing, pull yourself up but your own success, perfect American dream. Again, in the context, there's a certain truth to the idea that we don't approach life lazily, that we work hard, and we should work hard. So where's the balance in that? I think I hit some of that, but let's turn, if we can, to Deuteronomy, if you have a Bible there. Not that's okay, I do not have the verses up, but I will read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses... Moses is given instructions to the wandering Israelites as they get ready to come into the land which was promised by God. And he tells them not to forget all that God has done. He said, while you're out in the wilderness, God provided. You had nothing, you were lacking, and God provided for you while you were in the wilderness experience. And that was not only a chastisement, they didn't only get chastised for disobedience, but it was also a test. 
And now what he's doing is Moses is getting ready, or not Moses won't do it, but they're getting ready to come into the promised land. And Moses says, listen, you had nothing, and it was a test. Now you're coming into the land of milk and honey, and that too will be a test, both with much and with nothing. That's the context. Deuteronomy 8.11. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, led you in the great and terrifying wilderness with his fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water who brought you Water out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Verse 17. Beware lest in your heart you say things like my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. As he's warning them. Verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to get well, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, verse 19, and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Here's the principle. It is good and right, and God does desire that we work if we're able and not to be lazy. It is good and right to work hard and enjoy the work of your hand. It is not good and not right to be self-reliant. And he says, worship the good life, the, the, the abundance of stuff, to worship the gift, not the giver of the gifts. Look at verse 19. If you have a Bible, I'll read it for you again. If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and worship them, I warn you, you'll perish. Now, in those days, they had carven images. We have stadiums, boats, nothing wrong with being wealthy. What's wrong is, we're going to talk about this next week, I can't wait. Happy, healthy, and wealthy, that's what God wants. That's another lie from the pit of hell. If God gives you, it's a call to generosity. That's scriptural. What happens is, our gods become the things of this world, and, and the self-assurance, the self-reliance, the self-made man trusting in money and idolatry of self-worship makes us forget our dependency upon God. And you can easily become prideful and arrogant and look down on others. The heavyweight boxer Muhammad Ali just passed away not too long ago. He was on an airplane one time going on a flight on a plane. And the, and the attendant, flight attendant came to him and said, uh, Mr. Ali, please uh, buckle up. And Ali said, you know what? Superman don't need no... Seatbelt. Without hesitation, the flight said, yeah, well, Superman don't need no plane either. Buckle up. (laughs) If you find yourself judging others quickly, who don't have what you have, you find yourself becoming more and more selfish and and not more and more generous, maybe, just maybe, you're relying upon your own strength and your own ability. In the book, The The Grace Awakening, Dr. Charles Swindoll writes this. I consider the most dangerous heresy on earth, the emphasis on what we do for God instead of what God does for us. 
Some are so convinced of the opposite, they would argue nose to nose. They are often the ones who claim that their favorite verse in Scripture is, God helps those who help themselves. The fact is, God helps the helpless, the undeserving, those who don't measure up, those who fail to achieve a standard. Nevertheless, the heresy continues louder now than ever before in history. Most people see themselves as master of their own fate, captains of their own souls. And why not? It supports humanity's all-time favorite subject, self, end quote. True, gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, Jesus-loving theology begins with having nothing to offer to God and complete dependency upon Him, not self-help. It is not first, improve your life, do what you need to do, and God will help you. That really means now that God is obligated. I did my part, now you're obligated by what I do to come and do what I want you to do. Abraham's wife, Sarah, bought into this. God helps those who help themselves. And she took it upon herself to give what? Her maidservant to Abraham. Ishmael was born. The entire Arab world was birthed. Problems ever since. In our selfishness, we have to be careful. Number two, in our salvation. When it comes to salvation, God helps those who help themselves as antithetical to the gospel. It is completely against and contrary to the teaching of Scripture. It is anti-gospel. All right? We're going to get into that. But let me just bring everybody on the same page. Maybe you heard Jesus saved. You see the bumper stickers. And people say, are you saved? Which I I don't use that term anymore because people don't understand it. I might use it, maybe explain it. But maybe you don't know. What does it mean to be saved? Right? We're talking about salvation. What are we saved from? What does it mean Jesus saves? This is very oversimplistic, but I just want to give it to you. So we're all on the same page. Salvation, or Jesus saved, means that we have escaped the righteous judgment of God because of our sin and rebellion against him. Stealing, lying, cheating, most importantly, idolatry, loving, serving, worshiping, things, people, relationships, as more central to us than Christ. And because we sinned against an infinite God, there's infinite penalty to be paid unless we trust in what Jesus did on the cross On Calvary. And by grace and because of his great love for us, God, in the person of Jesus Christ, sacrificed himself on our behalf. He laid down his life as yours and I substitute, paying the penalty that we have earned but could not pay back and took the punishment we deserve in order to rescue, in order to save us from eternal damnation, a destiny separated from him, the just consequences of our sin. So, Jesus bears the wrath of God on the cross, rescues us, saves us from the judgment of sin, the penalty of sin, which is death and hell, and rises from the dead, which gives us a clear demonstration that his death was indeed sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, you can look it up. Saved, rescued by the atoning sacrifice substitute of Jesus paying for us and dying for our sins, rising from the dead, saved, rescued, okay? Scripture is clear. If we dare to think that somehow, some way, some shape, some form, we can help ourselves in our salvation, we've actually missed the opportunity for the rescue of God. One cannot do for oneself if one is totally incapable of doing it on their own. Salvation, listen, is the work of God, not man. It is not a two-handed rescue. As somehow God reaches down and we muster up enough energy to grab his hand so that we can be rescued. 
Some have falsely teached that salvation is synergistic. In other words, two-handed. Pelagian is one of the monks that taught in 390 A.D. Between 390 and 418, he lived. And he was declared a heretic in the Council of Carthage. What the Bible teaches us is that God does not help those who try and save themselves. But that when a person comes to faith, it is the solo work of God. He reaches down because the human heart, the human will, the human affection, the human ability does not have any inclination in itself to reach up toward Christ until Jesus comes, until the Spirit comes and gives us a new heart through a new birth. It's called a supernatural birth. And the Bible teaches us that we are sinners, we've turned away from God, we deserve death and hell, but God who is rich in mercy reaches down through Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice and rescues us and saves us and gives us an ill-deserved gift of grace, forgives our sins, he gives us a new heart, makes us his people. Salvation is not not through the combined efforts of, of the one who takes the initiative of God and then we must respond and somehow we become the determining factor. That is not what scripture teaches. Do your part and God will do his part. God helps those who help themselves. Reach up and reach after him and then God maybe someday, maybe you might just find his hand. Romans 3. It is written, there's none righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. In their own inclination, without the work of God, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. The clear analysis of the human heart is depravity and inability. One of the great verses is Ephesians 2. And what we see here is man's inability and God's mercy. Ephesians 2. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. Paul's talking about the past before they came Christians. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, what? All. Once lived, passions of the flesh, carrying out desires of the body and the mind, and by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You say, well, all doesn't all mean all all the time. Okay, all of mankind is everybody. But God, verse 4, gets no better than that. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love toward every one of you in this room, he loved us. And when we were dead in our trespasses, he, God, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. Listen, there's no helping yourself. Dead people cannot respond to life, not unless God equips them. Just as much as I would have a a body laying here that was dead and say, get up and stand up no matter what I say, no matter what I do, I have no chance for that person to respond unless God gives life. That's what he's saying. There's no self-help rescue salvation in Scripture. Theologians call our condition, if you've never heard this word before, total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean we are totally and absolutely depraved. There's nothing good in us. There is some good in us. We, we, we are born and we, we've been created in the Imago Dei, but every part of us has been marred by sin. Every part of us has been stained. Every part of us is bent and broken and corrupted by sin. And our natural selves do not have any inclination. Our wills don't want to choose. Our hearts don't want to obey. And we don't want to in and of ourselves choose the provision of God through the person of Christ, we're dead. Not unless God does. 
And here's the bottom line. Humans being able to be their own saviors. That's what they want to do. We love God helps those who help themselves. We love the idea that we're part of this because we don't want to be at the place where we're dead. We can't do anything. We have nothing to offer but fall ourselves upon the grace and mercy of Christ. We want to add that, right? You go see somebody, somebody does something nice for you, it's the first thing you want to do. I do a nice back. We can't do that with God and not with our salvation. It is not our work. It is a total work of God. Martin Luther calls this the, the default mode of every human heart. Religion, the default mode of every human heart. When he says religion, he's talking about religion that operates on the principle, if I obey and I work and I do the things that God commands me to do, I myself do those things, my part, I'll be accepted, I'll be loved, I'll be received, I'll be forgiven. That's religion. The gospel is I'm dead and helpless, but I'm accepted and forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ alone. And therefore, out of that, I will do giant difference between the two and martin luther says even christians if you're here as a believer and you say oh i could see other people doing that we do that too we are constantly falling back on that default mode of trying to work hard to enjoy god or work hard to receive salvation now if we're living in rebellion we're going to be chastised that's god the father in love no question that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about earning our salvation. We have sometimes we get ourselves into that. And, and that's what distinguishes Christianity than any other religion, any other philosophy, any other human thought, is that Christianity is, is not autosoteric, which means it's not salvation by one's own efforts. In Islam, redemption is not a gift but an act. Buddhism is consistent of, of the desire of being your own light. Practical Judaism and even Catholicism uh, presents meritorious, deserving schemes through prayers and sacrifices and ceremonies, right ethic conduct to earn God's favor, not the Bible and not the gospel. Orthodox Christianity knows no such systems, no such structure. It is by grace alone, from beginning to end, according to the good pleasure of God on the sole basis of the work of Christ and the work of his spirit upon his people. We are not commanded, if anything take away from this point is this, we are not commanded to pull up ourselves by our own bootstraps according to our own salvation, but to repent from sin, from the self-reliance, self-justification, and yield and trust and believe in Christ, okay? God does not help those who can help themselves simply because no one can help themselves. We cannot save ourselves from sin, the bondage of sin, the wrath of God for our sin. It becomes foolish. It becomes prideful. We must rest solely on the work of Christ, the grace of God in our life. So number one, we're not to be lazy. If we're able, we are to work. But not for self-promotion, not for self-reliance, not for selfishness, but to be generous and always thankful to God. Number two, the idea that we can help ourselves in salvation is antithetical to the truth of the gospel. And finally, sanctification. I chose this facet dealing with this question and using the heading of sanctification because there is a part of which believers play a role and their sanctification, also known as Disciplines of grace, maybe some of you heard that, or disciplines of the Christian life, they write books about that. Simply your devotional life, there are things in which we ought to do, right? We already talked about not being lazy. 
Sanctification, let's talk about that for a minute. I want to bring everybody together on the same page. Sanctification, the word sanctification comes from a Latin word, sanctus, meaning holy. Same thing with the Greek word. The original language is Greek. Hagiosmos means to make holy, to set apart. Sanctification, to be made holy, to set apart. It's where we get the word saints. It's where we get the word. We sing about God's holiness, he, you know, his holiness and our holiness are two different things, right? But it's, it's this otherness, this separateness. Sanctification, holy, okay? Now, holiness, or our sanctification, is both negative and positive. Negatively, we're separated from sin, away from dark, away from sin, and we are positively dedicated and devoted to God. Negative, away from sin, positively toward God. Romans 6, 11, that you, excuse me, that they may consider, talking about us, that we must consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to God. That's kind of what it looks like. And the word sanctification really has two meanings. Number one, it is one particular event where something has been set aside, dedicated to something, okay? If you remember in creation, God creates what? The seventh day, and then what does he do? He sets it aside, Genesis 2. He blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He sanctified it. He set it apart than the other six days, If you read the Old Testament, you'll find the utensils and the furniture and the tabernacle and the temple has been sanctified, set apart. You're not to use these things for anything that's common in Israel. You're only to use these utensils, this furniture, for the temple itself, separate from regular use and only use in devotion to God in the temple. It's a one-time deal. And if you're a Christian here today and you've been born of His Spirit, you immediately come to faith, you have been justified which means God declares you righteous by the, by the merit and the work of Jesus. You imputed righteousness where all that Jesus did perfectly as he walked this earth and died as an atoning sacrifice, all his glorious, meritorious work has been imputed to you one time when you come to faith, but you've also been sanctified. You've also been set apart. Declared not guilty in a, room, uh, a courtroom and then sanctified, set apart when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I have a couple of verses there for you. This all happens by grace. Colossians 1.13, he, that's God the Father, delivered us, salvation, saved. He delivered us, rescued from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. One kingdom to another kingdom. In whom we have redemption. That's how we get in, through the redemption. The forgiveness of sins. You see that? 1 Corinthians 1.2 says this. To those sanctified... The verb is perfect passive, done deal, completed by God. Once and for all, God does the work. Call to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. One more verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you. If you just go back another verse, he's talking about the immoral, the idolaters, the greedy, the drunkards. That's what some of you were. And then he says, look what he says. But you were washed. You were sanctified, arist indicative, done in the past, happened before. That's what you, but you've been sanctified, talking about salvation. You were sanctified, you were justified, a declaration, a declared act of not guilty in the courtroom. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God. Sanctified, justified, once and for all, through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dominion of darkness, dominion of of the kingdom of his beloved Son. 
There's a definite beginning to our sanctification, which is seen. Points to the genuine faith and conversion in Christ. Yet there's another aspect of sanctification in which we speak about mostly that increases, that grows. It, it, it won't end until we come face to face with Christ, until it's made perfect at our death. We, we continually grow. Uh, there's this one-time event and then there's a continual growing experience where the Holy Spirit renews us, regenerates us, gives us a new birth and propels us into the process, I like to use that word, into the process of sanctification. The maintaining, the strengthening, uh, the developing of character. If you're a Christian here today, you should know that. And make no mistake about it, the Bible is clear. This process of growing in the likeness of Jesus, more loving and bearing more fruit and, and, and being more like Jesus is what God is doing in your life. If you're fighting it, it's no use. You'll be like Jonah in the bottom of a fish, crying out. He'll get your attention. Romans 8, 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined salvation to be conformed to the image of his Son. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology books is this. And we're going to wrap this all up, so just stay with me. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Where God becomes the ultimate person, the ultimate reality of our hearts, and we're coming into the place in the process of becoming more like Jesus. We're kind of actually can be said that we're actually coming into a greater understanding of our identity in Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We have been justified by faith. We are declared righteous. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly. And now in this process on earth, that is becoming more and more real each and every day, hopefully, and then it will never come to completion. Until, until the consummation of the ages, new heavens, new earth, new body, glorified body, done away with sin, then we will know what true righteousness is. But we're in the process. That's what sanctification is all about. But what happens is, as we grow a little bit more like Jesus each and every every time, hopefully, you know, I take stock of myself. I've been a Christian almost 30 years now, about 29 years. Um, I got saved when I was two. You know, there are times in my life, a birthday, the first of the year, you know, it, it's good to take stock of yourself. Not, not to gain God's favor. I don't do that like, God, do you love me this year? But, you know, am I growing as a Christian? Maybe ask a close friend. Sometimes we're hard on ourselves. You know, do you see a little more love, a little more patience this year than, than I did the past couple of years? You know, we're growing. You know, it's nothing's perfect. Don't beat yourself up, but take stock. The Bible talks about examining yourself. I'm trying to earn God's favor. Just am I growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ? Is the sanctification process, some are quick, some are slow. Some people got a lot of stuff to work through. That's not the issue. Am I growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ? Am I becoming more humble and more patient? Hopefully over the years you can look back and say, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, brother, I, I see that in you. Absolutely, you're growing. I had a great privilege, and I'm going to put people on the spot right now, but Pastor Ricky, even Chris, and some of the ones that I work close with, uh, Scott as well, I mean, just watching them grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and the gospel is just awesome. It's by God's grace. And here's where we need to be careful, exactly there. In a very real sense, we're taking part in this. We're making choices not to sin, to gather together for corporate worship, submitting to each other, submitting to the leaders that God has placed over you. 
So make no mistake, sanctification is work, obeying God, growing in the likeness of Christ, taking in the, dis- the disciplines of prayer and, and scripture reading and living life together and accountability. I think of Hebrews, I got it down in 12.1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to so close and let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. He'll go on, the writer of Hebrews will go on to write in chapter 10. He says, consider how to stir each other up. Just stir each other up. To love and good deeds, right? I mean, that's what he says. And, 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 and do not neglect the habit of coming together, man. Come together in corporate worship. But encourage each other every day as you see the day drawing near. James tells them, don't be just what? A hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. The young Timothy is Paul's discipling and writes to him and says, listen, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. But we can easily slip into the means of earning sanctification, that's the problem. As we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, it can easily slip into the means of earning sanctification. Earning becomes meritorious rather than a work of grace. And then what happens? Pardon me, but we become jerks for Jesus. Self-righteous jerks, right? So there's two things to keep in mind as we deal with God helps those who help themselves, not really, but God is working in you. So in order to really understand how does this work Two things to keep in mind, okay? Two things to keep in mind. Sanctification involves both yielding to God, submitting to God, yielding to God, and activity. Doing, responding. Okay? Yielding and activity. Both of them, okay? Always remember, becoming more like Jesus is the primary work of God. It is supernatural. It is not of the human will. It does not originate with human strength. It does not originate with human power. It is the gift of God when he gave you the gift of the Spirit of God when you got converted. It is the work of grace alone. Paul's benediction to the Thessalonica church in chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes the, his, his opening mar- remarks in his, to the elect in exiles in 1 Peter, and he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Christ, for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So in a very real sense, and I don't want to lose you here, it is the work of God the work of the Spirit that empowers us to be more like Jesus. It is the work of grace alone, unearned favor of God. But in a very real sense, the Scripture commands us, brothers and sisters in Christ, to abstain from sexual immorality, to cleanse ourselves from every defilement, to make every effort to grow in the character that accords with godliness. Paul tells us to what? In Romans 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice. There are all kinds of obligations to do as followers of Christ. Not to earn God's love, but because of God's love and mercy. Gigantic difference. Many passages of scripture we can point to, but let me look at one one more verse on sanctification. Philippians chapter 2. Great book of Philippians. Really only a book that really doesn't do a whole lot of rebuking, but Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, 
Now, whenever you see therefore, you've got to say, what is therefore, therefore, right? We'll get to that in a minute. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always what? Obeyed. So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for because of it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Whose good pleasure? His good pleasure. This verse affirms that it is God is working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. God sanctifies us, but by causing us to want his will and by causing us and giving us the power to do his will. It is God doing the work. But also notice the collaboration of man and God. And I don't mean cooperation in the same way. We're not God. We're equal in functions. That's not accurate either. But Paul does say, obey. Paul does say, work out your salvation. Accomplish the salvation. He doesn't say work in. He says work out. Accomplish the work of Christ by the grace gift of God. By the gift of God in Christ. Work that out with fear and trembling. With solemnness and reverence. So yielding to God includes dependency, includes prayer, it includes yielding, it includes asking God for power and strength. But if left to ourselves, and that's all there is, there's a laziness that can come upon us where we neglect the active role that the Scripture commands us to play in our work towards sanctification. Work it out, he says. Therefore, it's important, I believe, to continue to grow in both yielding and trusting in Christ and actively doing and working toward the work of obedience and holiness. And the key is that we're not doing our own work. God helps those who help themselves. We're not doing our own work. We're not pulling up our own selves by our bootstraps, fulfilling our own agenda, and striving for our own purposes. We're being empowered for the purposes of God, cooperating with Him and His agenda. Well, how do we keep that focus? How do we keep that focus? We remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Hebrews, great book. It's all about Jesus' final sacrifice, the great high priest, all the, all the sacrificial system sacrifices that in the Old Testament, Jesus completes it once and for all. And in chapter 10, we read perfectly the beautiful uh, securing of our eternal salvation by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says with me, Hebrews chapter 10. And by that will, that will is Jesus, Jesus offering himself by that will, and you can read it for yourself later on, by that will, by Jesus offering his body as a sacrifice for us, that's what he means, and by that will, we have been sanctified. That's what I talked about the first time. Set apart. Set apart from sin, set apart to God. Perfect tense, completed action. We've been set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest, though, if you go into the temple daily, do sacrifices and offering repeatedly the same thing over and over. It'll never take away sin. Verse 12. But when Christ had come, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the Father, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Okay, so the priest stand daily, repeating sacrifice, it'll never take away sin. Jesus shows up, gives himself as an offering, once and for all a single sacrifice, it is final, it is complete, and he sits down. See the contrast? Priests stand, do their stuff, Jesus sits down, done. Once and for all, done. Completed work of the great high priest, done. Verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time. 
Once and for all, Jesus, permanent sacrifice, perfected, means made complete for believers. It's perfected, it's done, it's complete. Notice what it says. Those who are being sanctified. Different verb. Present, action in the process. Family, do you see what this author is saying? God does not help those who help themselves, but that by the gospel, by the gospel, through the gospel, we're being transformed into the likeness of his son. It is by grace alone, through Christ alone, for God's glory alone, that he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Whatever you do, eat or drink, do it all what? For the glory of God. So the final analysis, did God say he will help those who help themselves? No. God helps the helpless and empowers them through the gospel to become more like his glorious son. That's the right statement. New heart, new motives to obey and live godly lives is a response to the free, unearned, unmerited, and complete salvation that Jesus offers to us by grace. Now, I mentioned Philippians 2 and said there's a therefore. When you get a chance, go back. Because the six verses before that, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, is the gospel. He emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, was obedient unto death. God highly exalted him. It's the gospel. The gospel shows us that we don't live for ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We have to live for God's glory to display in our life the beauty and the incalculable worth of Christ. The gospel shows us that when we feel defeated and we blow it, we could run to the cross. For there is the work of Christ, his moral perfection, his substitutionary sacrifice, once and for all, forgives us of our sins and brings us into an eternal, complete, and beautiful relationship with the Father. And if you're feeling somewhat pious and virtuous, puffed up, by my strength, I've accomplished much. You too must look to the cross and see the bloody sacrifice that was done on your behalf for your sin. You look, you see the brokenness of your life. You look, you see the love and mercy and grace of God. That's the balance. That's the balance. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, we want to be a people that live for your glory. We want to be a people that never forget the strength comes from you. Our gifts come from you. The very breath we breathe comes from you. Help us, Lord, to live a life because of the gospel and through the gospel that brings you honor and glory. Father, keep us from being pious and arrogant Keep us from getting so prideful that we look down on others. But Lord, that by your grace, by your mercy, we will humble ourselves and recognize that you don't help those who help themselves, but you help us, the helpless. And you empower us, not for our purposes, but for yours, the glory of your Son. Father, that's our prayer. So as we respond today, with all I have is Christ, how true that is.
But Lord, may the Spirit of God fill us with joy because Christ is all we need.